Argila Tourneau was the owner of a large earth-moving equipment company, and he said they used to have a scraper known as the Model G. And someone asked one of the salesmen what the G stood for, and the salesman, after thinking a few seconds, replied, well, I guess the G stands for gossip, because like gossip, this machine moves a lot of dirt and moves it fast. Often when people do gossip, they're trying to win people over to their side, sort of like a presidential debate. One sociology researcher discovered that the initial negative statement was not the starting point for gossip. The critical turning point was found in the response to the initial negative statement. So, she's a real snob, is not the start of gossip. It's when someone else agrees with that statement that the gossip fest begins. And this sociologist found that the key is whether or not a negative statement is seconded. If a second is provided, gossip ensues. If not, the the conversation changes direction. Well, This is exactly what Jesus did. Rumor had it that Pilate had slaughtered people who were rebelling against the Roman government, nor allowed the bl- and, <clears throat> and then he allowed the blood of the rebels to mingle with the blood of the lambs or the bulls or other animals of sacrifice at the Jewish temple. This was awful for the Jews. And those present with Jesus appeared to be trying to win him over After all, these were Galileans, Jesus' home folk. If they wanted Jesus to badmouth Pilate, they needed Jesus to second their statement. But he doesn't do it. And the gossip stops, and Jesus' lesson begins. The lesson is about repentance, literally turning around, turning back, Toward God. And that's the theme of Lent. So we have to consider, I think, before we're ever willing to make a change, is it worth it? Why should we repent? Someone said, to err is human, but it feels divine. Jesus makes the case that we, whether we are rebellious and get killed by a political leader like Pilate, or whether an accident happens and a brick wall or a tree falls on us, like the Tower of Siloam fell and killed 18 people, we all have an end coming. Are we offenders, as Jesus puts it, than all others living in the area? No matter what, No matter how good we are or how bad we are, we all will die somehow. So maybe the question is, do we want to die with a clear conscience? Now where is God in this picture? Jesus' parable helps us to place God. A man had a fig tree growing in his yard, and by the third year it should have been bearing figs. But the tree was fruitless. 
We picture the landowner storming over to the gardener in frustration and saying, look at this tree. For three years I've kept coming to get fruit off of it, but it's worthless. Cut it down. Now, for some people, this man is their image of God. Is it yours? You there, you're not bearing fruit. I want to get rid of you, like the Galileans at the temple and the people crushed by the Tower of Siloam. You're just taking up space and breathing air and getting nutrients that could be helping another survive who is doing more work for me. Is that your image of God? In my imagination, this kind of God has a furrowed brow. Like angry birds, the nose sides of the eyebrows are lower than the ear sides of the eyebrows. This one. And that wasn't an unusual theology for people who gathered to hear Jesus. They had the image from the prophet Isaiah in their history of a vineyard and a landowner. This is from Isaiah 5 which portrays God as a landowner who carefully prepares the soil and chooses excellent vines for the vineyard. And God gives the vines every good opportunity for growth and to bear good fruit. But instead of bearing good fruit, they bear wild grapes. The vines are the people of Israel. And because the people rebelled, the landowner will undo every good thing he had done, remove the protective hedge, leave the grapevines unpruned, even let them become overgrown with briars and thorns and withhold the rain. Is this our view of God? When things are going poorly for us, maybe we wonder, is God punishing me? Because I haven't done enough good works? I haven't borne enough fruit? Has God stopped fertilizing me because I have failed God and haven't confessed and repented of certain errors? Is God going to cut me down because of what I have done or what I haven't? It's important to keep reading the Bible. If you keep reading in Isaiah and you keep reading in Jesus' parable, you get a different view of God, a view in which God's brows are not furrowed, but perhaps raised in hope. Soon after the image of the dying vineyard in Isaiah, God promises a sign. A young woman will bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. And a few chapters after that, we imagine the peaceful kingdom where the wolf shall live with the lamb, and the cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. So, does God repent? Or is this simply a different understanding of God as not only a God of judgment, but also a God of mercy? What if in Jesus' parable, God is not the landowner who wants to cut down the fruitless fig tree, but the gardener who wants to dig around the tree and fertilize it and give it another chance? If we, then, are the fig tree, what will we do with our new opportunity? 
The Roman scholar Cato started to study Greek when he was over 80 years old. Someone asked why he tackled such a difficult task at his age, and Cato said, it's the earliest age I have left. And he continued to study. Lent is a time to begin at the earliest age we have left. It's the time for repentance. It's the time to get right with God. And it's never too late to start doing things in a new way and start bearing fruit. Jesus has shown us how to do it. He arrived as God enfleshed to show us a new way, to show us a God of mercy and love and compassion, to show us the God of grace of whom Isaiah also speaks in chapter 55. If you're thirsty, here's water. Even if you have no money, come and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's a beautiful image. No barcodes, no price tags. And yet, are we searching for the right products? Maybe we want to think more metaphorically about what makes us rich. Isaiah says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And while we seek to be able to forgive here on earth, God has perfected it in heaven. Jesus, as God in person, walked solemnly toward Jerusalem and the cross. Similar to those Galileans whose blood was shed, uh, Jesus' nonviolent sacrifice of self to a violent execution was an example of forgiveness even to those who had not repented. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Gary Preston tells a story about a traveler making his way with a guide through the jungles of Burma. They come to a shallow but wide river, and they wade through it to the other side. And when the traveler comes out of the river, numerous leeches have attached themselves to his torso and legs. And his first instinct, then, is to grab them and pull them off. And the guide stops him and warns him that pulling the leeches off would only leave behind little pieces of them under the skin, and eventually infection would set in. And he told him that the best way to rid the body of these leeches is to bathe in a warm balsam bath for several minutes. This soaks the leeches, and soon they release their hold on the body. And Preston makes this connection that when he's been significantly injured by someone else, he can't simply yank the injury from himself and expect that all bitterness and malice and emotion will be gone. Resentment still hides under the surface. 
The only way to become truly free of the offense and to forgive others is to bathe in the soothing bath of God's forgiveness of himself. And he says, when I finally fathom the extent of God's love in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of others is a natural outflow. If mercy awaits, what shall we do in the meantime? A Sunday school teacher had just concluded her lesson and wanted to make sure that, she had, that the children had understood her point, so she asked, can anyone tell me what you must do before you receive forgiveness of sin? And there was a quiet pause before a little boy spoke up and said, Sin? If mercy awaits, what shall we do in the meantime? Paul asks a similar question in chapter 6 of his letter to the Romans. He says, what then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life, with its mercy, awaits us all. What then shall we do in the meantime? Let's pray. What then shall we do in the meantime, O Lord? We pray. We ask for your help to lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. We call on you to give us strength and courage to deal with all of the challenges that life tosses at us. Help us even to catch them, O God, and to recreate them, remold them into goodness, into peace, and into mercy. As we realize how merciful you are to us, help us also to show mercy to others. We pray in the name of our merciful Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.